0: Good morning, all. <clears throat> We're reading from Psalm 2 today, and this is the Coronation Psalm. Why do the great nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together, against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying... Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in their wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today have I become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with the rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all you who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's great to be uh, together uh, the week after Easter, or, or in fact, for some parts of the world, uh, today is Easter. And so the Eastern Orthodox Churches are celebrating the resurrection of Christ today. So we decided to keep our setup, up, keep the cross up, keep the lights going for one more week. Uh, in fact, someone said to me the other day, said, you get to celebrate Easter for two weeks in a row. I said, in fact, I celebrate Easter every Sunday when we gather. It reminds us of the resurrection of Christ. And so I was thinking of a one-off talk today between Easter and before launching our new series next week in May. We will be doing a series in Romans 1 to 5 in the morning, 1 Corinthians 1 to 6 in the evening. And I thought, what's something? And the passage that came to me was Psalm 2, an important passage, especially with Anzac Day on tomorrow. The question is, who rules the world? Who rules the world? We saw a dead and resurrected saviour. Uh, last week, and we remember the resurrection of Christ today. But you see, the world is a mess. As uh, Ricky mentioned, there's so many places in the world, and they're just some of them, right, where there's continuing conflict that we are often unaware of and often do not focus on uh, terrible things happen, from World War I right through to Ukraine, even now. And so you ask the question, who rules the world? And further, the church suffers persecution across the globe. Christians are killed, imprisoned, they're tortured. Uh, Churches are torched. Christian villages are attacked. Christian beliefs are mocked. So who rules the world? Well, Psalm 2 answers that question of who rules the world and also gives us the reason why the righteous, those who trust in God, can have great confidence in him. And so in answer to the question of who rules the world, I'll give you all the answers at the beginning, then we'll look at the text. God does. who is in control of world history? God is. How does he respond to rebellion against him? He sends his son to be the saviour and to be the one who crushes the rebellion. And we saw it played out in the Easter events. What will be the ultimate destiny of those who reject him? Destruction. Who can you trust in this life? The God who rules. What is our only hope? Submission to God and his king. Psalm 2 is known as a royal psalm. It defines the status and role of the Davidic king reigning from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. More specifically, it is called a coronation psalm. Used at the accession of the king or the annual celebration of his accession or both. It focuses on the truth that opposition to God is foolishness. It is even laughable. God is king in his world, he tells us. And he has established his king as his representative. And the psalm says, don't mess with God's king. And we be aware that the psalm finds its fuller meaning in Jesus, God's king in the kingdom of God. The anointed one, the ultimate anointed one, who is the Messiah, is Christ. And we will see that this psalm is quoted a number of times in the New Testament and applied to Jesus himself. Firstly, what is happening in this psalm? Rebelling against God and his king. So, what happens at the coronation of a new king? It's the accession of a new person to the position of power and authority. So, when one king dies, it is a chance for the others to rebel. Before you install a new king, the armies gather together. And if you're a, a vassal state or under the authority of this nation, you think, here's our chance. Right? The nation's disorganized, the king is not in place. Let's gather together, see if we can get rid of that king and gain our freedom. The king is dead, they think. Let's break free. And the historical background is here um, it says, Why do the nations conspire? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. Now's our chance, they say. What do the nations conspire? They congregate in commotion. And the people plot in vain. They murmur murderous, murderously. They rise up. They take their stand. They band together, they take counsel together. See, the enemies of Israel are now gathering together against the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God, and against his anointed one, God's appointed king. And they say, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. Now, chains and shackles are normally placed on the feet. And that's the picture. I so said, here's our chance now to break them off and gain our freedom. No longer listen to Yahweh. No longer listen and submit to Israel's king." Here's our chance. they rebel against his anointed one. The anointed one is a royal title derived from the fact that the king on his coronation is anointed, often with oil, symbolizing that this person has been set apart for a particular service. And even the people know that this king is anointed by Yahweh. It's Yahweh's anointed one. God sets him apart and they still want to rebel against him. The word anointed, is the form from which comes the English title Messiah, derived from the Hebrew, the anointed one or the Messiah. And we see in the New Testament that this psalm is applied to Jesus. Take Acts chapter 4, for example, verses 25 to 29. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And see now where, who they apply it to. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. doesn't write writers see... One of the fulfillments, the fuller fulfillment of Psalm 2 in the cross itself. The kings and the rulers, that's Herod and Pilate, the nations and the peoples, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they're united against God's anointed king, or who is Christ in the Greek. And we note in this opposition to God, to remember God's quiet sovereignty, God's quiet sovereignty. That God is working behind the scenes, often quietly, to fulfill his purposes in the world. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God was not surprised by the arrest and the execution of Jesus. He was not surprised at all. He knew about it. It was part of his sovereign plan to bring salvation to the nations. His quiet sovereignty. God is always at work. God is ruling the world, fulfilling his purposes, sometimes unusual ways. So even in a very act of killing Jesus, God was fulfilling his purposes. And friends, we have to realize that when we're thinking about rebels today and applying it to us. There are rebels everywhere today. Rebels against God and rebels against God's anointed one, King Jesus, aren't there? People still reject God. They still mock him. They will say we will not have Jesus to be our king. We will do things our way. It happens in Buddhist nations, it happens in Muslim nations, and happens in communist China, it happens in secular Western nations like Australia. We will not have Jesus be our king. Next time we fill out the survey at the census, we'll let people know we no longer follow Jesus. From eighty percent affirmation of Christianity to seventy to sixty to fifty. I wonder what the new census will say. Under 50, for sure. People are not only hiding the fact that... Uh, in the past, people claimed to be a Christian without being Christian, right? Now they're no longer claiming to be Christian at all. We will not have Jesus be our king. It's our lives. We'll do what we want with it. It's everywhere. And it takes great faith to testify to God's work, doesn't it? And we will face opposition from families and friends and the media at university, at schools... But no matter what happens, God is still able to fulfill his purposes. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is doing his work to grow his church. Let me give you an example. I was reading a book called 2020 Vision, written in 2005, looking forward into the future. And at that stage, these are some of the stats. It says in 1950, when China closed to foreign missionaries, no missionaries allowed, kick them out. There were one million Protestant Christians in the country. In 2020, there was 116 million. You see, the communist country thinks it's going to shut God out of the country. And guess what happens? God can't be shut out of the country. God is in there in evangelism and mission and house church planting movements and organized churches and unorganized churches. God is doing his work. Or take Korea. 100 years ago, Korea was unreached. It it was said to be impenetrable by the gospel. Today, one-third of the entire population of Korea are believers in Christ. You can't reach Korea. God quietly does his work and sees people saved. Or take Iran, for example. Something like, count like 300 believers in Iran in 1979. They were saying, when the Islamic Revolution took place, today the guesstimate is something like 750,000 believers. Articles everywhere, you can read it. Uh, The the church is exploding in Iran. God's quiet sovereignty. Well, you don't see it, God is still at work. Secondly, what's God's response to the rebellious plans? Verses 4 to 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You get the picture of God sitting up going, here they go again. They think they can rebel against me, do what they like and get away with it. God's going, He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my whole mountain. What do you think you're doing? You can rebel as much as you like, but I've placed my king in place. It's important to realize that God is enthroned in heaven. It's a picture that God is in control. He is ruling the world. He's not concerned about their threats. Rather, he laughs at their arrogance and their stupidity. It's a bit like this, and uh, I've had a, a few uh, kids in my life, three in fact, um, and I remember when they were two, Those were with two-year-olds, you know when the sons, they become rebellious, and they don't want to do what you say, and you're bigger than them, and they try to run away from you, and you catch them, and you hold them, I'm not coming with you. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm not in there trying to fight. Get out of the way. Pull off your glasses and whatever they're gonna try and do. And you go, no, you're not going anywhere. Because you're stronger than them. Most of the times, right? Sometimes they escape those little little children. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> A bit like that with God going, guys, just give it up. It's laughable. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, holy mountain. And uh, the word Zion uh, often refers to different things. Sometimes it refers to the city of David itself, to Samuel 5, 17, the whole city. Uh, Then transferred to the temple hill in Isaiah and Micah, and sometimes the whole city of Jerusalem. Um, But it's the place where God reigns, where God rules. That's that picture. The Lord is said to dwell at Mount Zion, Psalm 74, verse 2. And, uh, and reign from there, Micah 4 7, uh, part B. But thirdly, he then he has a decree. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I will become your father. And now these words probably have been read by the king himself as part of the coronation service, because he said, He said to me, You are my son, today I become your father. And it's a document, the decree that's given to the king during the coronation ceremony. It's a personal covenant document renewing God's covenant commitment to the dynasty of David. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise that I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the coronation, this covenant document is reaffirmed and given to the king. And the king is adopted as God's son, just as Israel had been adopted. You see, Israel is my firstborn son, God says in Exodus 4.22. It says the whole nation is like my son, right? And now the king is adopted in a special sense as God's son. Now keep in mind that unlike other ancient Near Eastern kings, this does not imply deity. Some of the other ancient Near East kings, when they came into kingship, they saw themselves as gods. That's not the case here. There was one God, and the king simply worshipped and honoured that God. And the messianic significance of verse 7 is found in the fact that Jesus too is the son of God, but the difference is he is a son by nature, not by adoption. And Jesus fulfills verse 7, giving it a fuller meaning. So what do we know about Jesus? His uniqueness as the Son of God is evidenced in many places in the New Testament. Let me just give you two. John 17 verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He addresses his God as Father. He said, I used to be with you in glory. Oh, please give me that same glory. I'm coming home, Dad. Right? Can you just glorify me? John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. That's just a reference to Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. See, Jesus is divine. He was with God in the beginning. And then those words, you are my son, as we see in Psalm, we see him at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, says the Father. At his transfiguration, remember, when he was transformed and he shone brightly in white with Moses and Elijah. This is my son, God says, whom I love. With, whom I, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And with reference to his resurrection in Acts 13, 33, Psalm 2, verse 7 is quoted. Again, Jesus was raised. He is the Son of God. Romans 1, verse 4, and we'll look at this next week. We'll look at Romans. We're told that the resurrection from the dead publicly declares that he is king or the Son of God. Through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is a king, he is God's son, and he comes to rule and reign. But let me mention right here that Psalm 2 pictures God as a king, and God speaks about uh, violently and in wrath exercising his role and power and authority. But we need to remember also that Jesus is also the suffering servant. Suffering servants. Psalm 2 doesn't explain that area, it explains his royal power, but Isaiah 52 to 53 describe him as a suffering servant, as amongst other passages. And so when we live as Christians on this side of the cross, we realize that the establishment of the kingdom of God by Jesus marks a radically new concept of royal power from that depicted in the coronation of the Davidic king. His kingship is different to what we saw in Psalm 2. And this was difficult for the Jews to cope with. You know, they were waiting for military royal king. They missed the servant theme. So when Jesus was on the earth, at this time, you're going to establish the kingdom? At this time, we're going to get rid of the Romans? And he ends up on a cross. Because they missed the suffering servant theme. You've got to have his royal thing, his kingship, and his suffering. I was just thinking of that song, uh, the lion and the lamb, right? The lion is the king, the lamb is the sacrificial lamb. You need to hold both things together. And in the Old Testament times, the nations of the world were portrayed as rebellious at the coronation. They would be subdued by the Davidic king. And someone has said the psalm breeds an atmosphere of violence, chapter 2, verse 9. But Jesus did not respond with violence. He was willing to accept the violence even to the point of death. And in summary, the new kingdom was established in the receipt of violence and death. The climax of Jesus' coronation lay in his conquest of death through resurrection. He's not merely a human king who goes out to battle, but he gives his life for us. And therefore, in verse 8, I love this verse, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. There's now missionary work is needed. God wants... He's king in the Old Testament to have all the nations gather to worship the one true God. And now through Christ, we are sent out so the nations would come to worship Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Because he is king, and he said, now go out. In Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. God's kingship is about drawing men and women back to himself to find forgiveness and new life. I read this devastating story this week. It was about a Times reporter uh, of New Philadelphia in Ohio. It was reported in 1985, September 1985. uh, The people gathered together to celebrate... uh, at the New Orleans Municipal pools, a celebration because it was the first summer in memory without a drowning at any New Orleans City pool. In honor of the occasion, 200 people gathered, including 100 certified lifeguards. God, we've done well! Let's gather to celebrate not one drowning this summer. As the party was breaking up and the four lifeguards on duty began to clear the pool, They found a fully dressed body in the deep end. They tried to revive the man, Jeremy Moody, 31 years old, but it was too late. He had drowned surrounded by lifeguards celebrating the successful season. The person who told this story tried to apply to us and say, I wonder how often visitors to church, your neighbours and friends are drowning in spiritual deadness, in loneliness, in hurt and depression and doubt. And we could have helped, but we didn't realize it. Maybe we're just enjoying our time in fellowship together. Maybe enjoying the celebration of what God is doing amongst us. That we didn't see the lost person. We didn't see the hurting person. We didn't see the one who was drowning. He just needed someone to come alongside them, to love them, to care for them to speak words of comfort and encouragement, speak words of the gospel to them. That quote, who said, "Our purpose is to do what the old hymn says, to rescue the perishing. Friends, our Savior died and rose again to bring salvation to a lost world. I wonder whether we're looking to see the lost world and to play our part as God gives us opportunity to love them and to help rescue them. Whether it's through personal witness, through our ministers at our church, men's, women's, families, children's, youth, through SRE in the local schools, taking the gospel to teach scripture in schools. Can you imagine 30 minutes every week? What a privilege it is we have to take the gospel. To young children. Or chaplaincy. Some of our men work in hospital chaplaincy. Uh, Rick is in an army chaplaincy. Others are in moderation chaplaincy. Being out there as God's uh, men and women. Or exploring Christianity course that we're about to run. Inviting someone to come with you. Or remembering our missionaries. The Slim is about to turn to on. Pray for Milad. He has COVID at the moment. I should mention David Williams has COVID at the moment. So uh, he, he's off here. I think um, Positive on Friday, so he'll be out for this week. So um, don't, don't pester him, he can't meet up with you uh, this week. Um, just pray for their health. The Nicholsons in Central Asia, Edo and Claire in Southeast Asia, Jasmine in Thailand. And next week we launch our May Mission Appeal. Between Eastern East and May Mission Appeal. 10 projects, 10 different countries, $75,000 to help take the gospel to those who are drowning without anyone to come alongside them to save them. But one of the other things we wanna do as we seek to take the gospel to others is, and uh, Graeme Dunkley, who's uh, been a missionary in the past and uh, he lectures at Moreland College, he said, Ange, instead of just raising money for other projects out there, do you think we could have a different goal this year? I said, what is it, Graeme? He said, do you think we have a goal of raising 10 men and women who would seriously consider the possibility of overseas mission or long-term full-time ministry? So we'll be talking about that. God's got to raise up some more people who would consider full-time ministry to take the gospel overseas. And uh, May 22nd, Sunday evening, we're going to run a, a pizza and a, and a Coke night, pizza and Coke night afterwards. To, for anyone who might be interested to explore and to seek God about, about that, make the nations, he says, go to the nations, make the nations my possession. There will be a final judgment, and that's one of the reasons we must go. You'll break or rule them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. God says in in Israel's time that he would come against uh, the enemies of Israel and bring judgment upon them. Uh, he, He dashes them like pottery. You know, when pottery smashes, it just goes everywhere. God is in control. They won't come back together against him. And the language of the Vedic king here, as you would be imagine, is characterized by the ideal rather than the reality. Uh, that uh, nations will come to him, judgment will come, and everyone will come. But it's not quite like that. Even with the kingship of Jesus, you think, Jesus is not really ruling, is he? Is he ruling? Nations are going wild everywhere. There's still wars, there's killing, there's still violence. What we need to remember with the kingship of Jesus is this. The kingship of Jesus is established... The climax of Jesus' dominion is a future reality. The consummation, the perfection of the kingdom has not yet taken place, but it's coming. So we don't stop in the Gospels. We get to the book of Revelation. Well, we can stay in the Gospels because they talk about the end as well. But you go to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2.27, uh, the verses apply to victorious Christian who will, uh, with Christ, rule over the nation. So one day we will rule with Christ over everyone. Revelation 12.5 and 19.15 is applied to Christ coming in final judgment. Listen to this, straight out of uh, Psalm 2. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So he is coming in ultimate judgment. So when we say people are drowning before us, uh, and if they're drowning in spiritual deafness, then when they meet God at judgment day, they then separate from God forever under his judgment. There is a final judgment coming. The King of kings and Lord of lords is coming back. So what should we do? Verses 10 to 12 says, Well, submit to the king. Submit to the king. Think through very carefully what you do with Jesus. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so as they recite this psalm and people are listening, it's be wise, be warned, be smart, be sensible. Think through the implications of rebelling against Yahweh, God, Israel's God. Think about the implication of rejecting Jesus and doing your own thing. Serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. Kiss the Son. It's a sign of homage and submission, isn't it? We submit to him, we honour him, we lift him up. And all who seek refuge, and the happiness is to all who will seek refuge in him. When it's grace breaks through completely in that final line, doesn't it? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. They find security and blessing in their relationship with God and his king. As we've said, God laughs at the arrogance and stupidity of people rebelling against him. He doesn't laugh at their judgment, by the way. I think we should never laugh at the judgment coming. We should weep at the judgment coming upon those who rejected God. And we should play our part in ensuring that everyone has an opportunity to meet this Jesus and find forgiveness and new life that would find their refuge in him. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, we want to submit ourselves to you. We want to kiss the sun. We want to be wise. We acknowledge you as our king and our saviour. The Lord Jesus as our Messiah, the Anointed One, who died and rose again for us. And Lord, we want to pray that not only would we know this great news, but we would play our part in rescuing the perishing. Our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters, our neighbours our work friends, our community contacts, the nations of the earth. Lord, come and do your work, we pray. We thank you that you are quietly exercising your sovereignty, even in places where we cannot see. You're building your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Help us to love you, to trust you, to live in light of the cross and light of the resurrection. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.